And welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host. Hey, it's great to have you with us. I will give you all of the pertinent information a little bit later on in the program because uh, I want to jump right in here and uh, talk with our guest about something that is uh, of uh, paramount importance to probably everybody, not just where you are, but uh, all around the world because it is said that uh, a lot of folks are dealing with this particular uh, issue and we want to talk about it today so I hope that you will stay with us we're going to talk about moving past post-traumatic stress disorder Jamie Parent is my guest and uh, he is the author of this particular uh, work uh, consciousness understanding and appreciation for uh, military uh, veterans and uh, their families. Now, that's the, the main focus, of course, in this regard of the book. And, Jamie, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. It's great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Now, I realize that the book is geared in a particular direction, but it can be expanded beyond that. And granted, uh, when we talk about the military, we, do, we have to talk about what um, one of the things that they uh, unfortunately come back from combat with, and that, of course, is post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, PTSD. But they aren't the only ones suffering from PTSD. Now, we will take some time to focus specifically on the veterans. But first of all, talk to us about uh, the definition, if you will, of what PTSD is from a, I guess, is this under the category of mental health? Yes, it is. Okay. PTSD is the result of an individual who has experienced some sort of horrific trauma that um, uh, perhaps is a surprise or just more often than not just overwhelms the person uh, from a mental health perspective. Uh, it's often associated with military uh, war and veterans. But as we're seeing lately, Richard, we're seeing a lot of people coming up with PTSD in the COVID world. Mm -hmm. And again, it is, it is multifactorial. It is not just the um, caregivers and first responders that are coming up with PTSD. It's those that support them. And it's actually some of the COVID patients. Again, basically the definition is you experience some kind of horrific trauma. It could be an automobile accident. It could be the result of war, or it could be the result of COVID that basically uh, changes who you are and requires a great deal of uh, understanding. That's why I say consciousness, understanding, and appreciation for people with PTSD, regardless of how they develop PTSD. Right. Uh, and yet it is the military. It is those who have served uh, over the decades, if not the, the last couple of centuries. I mean, uh, would you say that uh, members of the uh, uh, military uh, during the Revolutionary War suffered from PTSD? I would say that evidence even goes back perhaps further than that. Of course, the evidence would be sketchy, but um, it used to be that... Uh, the term PTSD is a relatively new term. It used to be uh, classified as either battle fatigue or war weariness. Um, and if, if any of you know any of World War II veterans, a lot of World War II veterans came back 
um, maybe quiet, maybe different, didn't want to talk about their military experience, kind of suffered in silence. We call those those with in, uh, invisible wounds. And PTSD and combat fatigue was really a big issue during World War One, mm-hmm. uh, especially those that fought in Europe, because World War One was a brutal, a brutal war. Uh, not that wars today are any easier, mm-hmm. but the evacuation, the ability to save people, the ability of people that uh, would normally have bled to death on the battlefield, because of the advances in medicine and transportation, we're able to save these people. Now, by save, I mean, okay, so you save their lives, but what happens after the life has been saved and they've gone through such a traumatic experience? And these are some of the things that I highlighted um, in my book, because it's not just the military member or the veteran that gets PTSD. PTSD kind of encompasses the whole family. So it's like, it's not just an individual with PTSD. It's kind of like a family with PTSD as they deal with the struggle of their loved ones coming home. Mm. Now, it's interesting you, you phrase it moving past PTSD. And in many of uh, the programs that I have uh, done in regards to a lot of the mental and emotional issues that we deal with, and especially the emotions of anxiety and fear and depression, they talk about how you need to move through it, to get through it, to get to the other side. Uh, Tell me the difference between the terminologies that I'm bringing up, moving past it versus moving through it. I like to use the term uh, rear view mirror because that's what I've heard the term a lot of veterans use. They want to put PTSD in the rear view mirror. In other words, they don't have to face it on a day-to-day basis. They want to try and suppress those feelings uh, if they possibly can and just kind of like move on. I I use the term moving on rather than going through because I wanted to introduce at least some, a little bit of finality of moving on versus just getting through it. I mean, you can get through the flu. You can get through a broken leg. Mm -hmm. Um, But with something like a mental health health issue, not only do you need to get through it, but I think the important part is you need to move past it as well as those that are around you. Move past it. Try to put it as much in the rearview mirror as possible. And that's why I chose the term moving past PTSD. Now, in terms of doing just that, you can move past, I guess, what, the, um, the effects of the events that caused it. But you are always going to have the memories. How do you, and I'm not sure what the right word is here, how do you train or facilitate someone to move through those memories so as not to be triggered by current events, as we've seen many times, both in television and movies and so forth, where a certain event that's going on right in front of them is starting to trigger those memories, and now they're starting to get anxious, and they're starting to get maybe maybe fearful uh, or depressed or whatever the case might be in regards to PTSD. Uh, how, how do you help them to, to do that? Communication is key. And being a good listener is key. Um, And also patience, because there are just some veterans who will never open up. Uh, Some will open up a little bit, but a lot of veterans feel that no one can understand what I've gone through. No one has seen what I have seen. 
And for me to try to describe and explain it to them is very, very painful. Mm -hmm. uh, I describe uh, one story where um, this young lady came to me and her father had just passed away. And she was very upset with her father for the following reason. Uh, a couple of his war buddies came to the funeral. And at the funeral, they uh, spoke to her and they said, you know, your father was a great hero. Your father did this. Your father ran into a, a burning building. Your father um, saved all these lives. And the, the, the woman was both appreciative, but she was also angry. She was angry that her father was not able to share these stories with her. Mm. She didn't understand why something like that couldn't be shared so that she could try to, um, first of all, be, be very proud of her dad, which she was, but she, she felt that that was a significant part of his life that he couldn't share with her. And so I, the first thing I said to her was, first of all, you had a great dad who made a lot of sacrifices for his country. But second of all, um, try not to be mad at your father because he just didn't have the capability or the skills to tell you what he had gone through. Mm. And then finally I said, you know, if you can be grateful to the war buddies that showed up because that's when you got all that information about how great a dad your father was and mm -hmm. what a great hero. So even though your dad couldn't tell you what a great hero he was, you at least had the opportunity that other people don't get the opportunity that those that served with your father came and explained that to you. So I was glad I was able to help her because she felt a lot better because she was keeping some anger inside that her father did, did, uh, did not share it. And I just said, look at it this way. Your father couldn't really share it. Right. It wasn't really a choice for him, but you got to find out the real truth in the end anyway. We're and she went to describe his room with purple heart and, you know, all these other war badges and stuff. And now all that made sense to her. It just didn't make sense to her during her father's life. We're talking with Jamie Parent, and he is the author of Moving Past PTSD, Consciousness, Understanding, and Appreciation, in this case for military veterans and their families. And uh, that's an interesting aspect, too, that the whole family is going to be going through this. Uh, they may not have the memories, but they're dealing with, as caregivers, if you will, of the person going through PTSD. We're going to continue to talk to Jamie about this and other related issues here on Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and we're here Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m. We are streaming live at those times at richarddugan.com, but don't forget about the Wednesday edition. It's a special edition. That is at 9 a.m. Pacific time here on this fine station. And we're talking with Jamie Parent, and he's the author of uh, Moving Past, Moving Past PTSD. And we are uh, glad that he's with us. You, uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I was just thinking of this as you were sharing that story. Uh, and, uh, of course, asking uh, the question about how you can facilitate helping people through, the people who have, have, have actually directly are directly suffering from PTSD uh, and the thought flashed through my mind uh, how 
in usually in high school <clears throat> and it's usually just before the students turn 16 because that's when they're able to get their permit for driving and they will show you blood on the asphalt or whatever the name of the of the driving film is right to sort of kind of scare you straight to make sure that you will um, uh, you <laughs> drive safely and avoid this disastrous situation that you've just seen uh, on film and for some it probably works for others it probably doesn't but nonetheless there they go they're trying to prepare them is there anything within the context of the military in context of whatever the early stages of training like boot camp i guess is for the army um <clears throat> that that they prepare uh, the men and women who are most likely going to see combat. Is there anything that they can do in that regard to sort of uh, give them something to work with when all of a the sudden they're placed in this in, placed in harm's way and and all hell breaks loose and they see things that no human should human being should ever see. The military does a very good job of training men and women to fight. Uh, all the branches of service do that. And that training can last anywhere from a couple of weeks to even a couple of months where they recreate the jungle transition or, or the, the, the jungle things you'll be experiencing, right. jumping out of planes. Um, the military does provide training for what to do if you are a POW, if you become a POW. Um, and so when the military member is going overseas, there are very few surprises in terms of what you're going to eat, your weapon, how long your days are going to be, what your specific job is. Because if the military doesn't do that, then people die, quite honestly. So the military does a great deal of preparation for that. Unfortunately, when it's time to go home, there is almost zero preparation to go back to where you were before you joined the military. And depending upon your military training, and I'll pick on my Marine friends for just a moment, <laughs> Marines go through a great deal of breaking down who you are and then building yourself up to be a Marine. So it's a very admirable process, I think, to train you to fight and to train you to win. But there's no real training on the, on the back end. It's been, one, one guy told me his, his transition back to the States uh, the highlight of this transition back to the States was he owed the government $150 because he couldn't find his helmet. <laughs> oh, jeez. So, so when you go over into the theater operation, as we say, you become a different person. You really do. And the military trains you to be that different person. However, they don't train you to go back to hometown USA. Mm -hmm. They don't train you to go back and have the relationships that you haven't had with people. And on the other flip side of that, the welcome home for military members, unlike the Vietnam War, is a tremendous hug. Welcome, hug, gratefulness, etc., etc., etc. But when the fanfare dies, the military member is left with, okay, I'm back in hometown USA, but I'm a completely different person than I was overseas. And there really no, there really is no way to treat uh, or to train people. I think uh, for some of the things that they are going to experience, even in EMT, um, guys and gals that run, you know, 
uh, run the ambulances. Mm -hmm. They see some incredible things as well. It's not a battlefield, but it's still, you know, the horrors of death, uh, the young people that mm -hmm. die, the innocent kids in an automobile accident, the people in fires. We're seeing it down here, Richard, in um, South Florida, in Surfside, with the condo collapse. Yeah. Yeah. You're seeing the the first responders who are. Uh, I, I I've heard of one a first responder. He's digging up a rock, and then there's a child's arm. Mm. So you can't really prepare somebody for that kind of thing. You can show them all the movies you want, and you can have them attend all the classes you want. But to actually experience, I think, is 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 the real thing that that hits the person, and it hits people. Um, some people can just handle it, and some can't. It's just basically kind of like uh, your makeup. Um, there are some things that we, we that we've noticed with um, uh, people that have perhaps had some childhood trauma, maybe more vulnerable to PTSD. Uh, we found that young people, ages like eighteen to twenty-five, are more vulnerable to PTSD. Um, so there are some mitigating factors. But the military doesn't screen for those kinds of factors. They don't ask you, um, well, have you had mental health issues in the past? Because the reality is, Richard, the military member would probably say, uh, no, no, I don't have anything. And then just, you know, go off to war because, you know, that's what they want to do. They're all volunteer army. Mm -hmm. They want to go over there and defend their country. So yeah. the bottom line is there's, you can, you can prep the, the way, the best way you can. But when you experience it, it could be entirely different. Now, uh, I did a little research uh, on uh, the treatment of our military in regards to how they aren't treated. And I asked the question, so how far back does this mistreatment or lack of treatment on the part of our government towards its veterans who have served, who have gone and, quote unquote, fought for this country, and the sad fact is that this has been going on since and including the Revolutionary War. Yes. And that is, I have to tell you, I'm not a fan of the military because we have to send these people into harm's way and we lose so much great potential when this, these lives are lost. That's what, that's what galls me. I wish that the that the congressmen and women who make these decisions would send their children first, you know, because uh, it's just it's heartbreaking to think about the potential that we are losing in these human beings who could have contributed so much to our society and our civilization and their own communities, their own families. And now they will never have that opportunity in spite of the fact and I, I don't want to take this away in spite of the fact that they made a choice to serve their country. And I think that that's an important distinction to make. I also researched how other cultures treat their, and I don't mean in modern days necessarily, but, at, uh, but going back centuries, how they treated their uh, war-torn after the battle was over. And win or lose, many of the communities embraced their soldiers, their fighters, and they honored them for their willingness to go and defend their kingdom or what have you, their, their village, their province, etc., etc. 
uh, and and they may not have thrown parades, but it's like you said earlier, they gave them that hug, if you will, and embraced them and said, win or lose, you are welcome here, you belong here, you are part of our community, and whatever you need, we're here to give it to you. We're here to help you. That's kind of where you are right now, isn't it, in regards to not just this book, but the work you do, and especially being a retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel, correct? Correct, yes. yes. Talk, um, talk to me about, uh, actually talk to us about, if you will, um, what inspired you to take this on? Because, quite honestly, uh, you, first of all, you can, I know you don't do this alone, you can't do this alone, but um, obviously when you first started, it must have, it's, 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 it's monumental. It is. It is. I first started with what I thought was a basic need for veterans, and that was finding a job when you come home. And it goes back to my comments about preparing uh, the military member to go to war mm -hmm. and not preparing them to come back. So the government had a, a, the idea that we could throw education money, we could throw housing money, we could establish those types of government programs and those programs would really help in, the, in these cases. But the fact of the matter is there's a lot of bureaucracy for those things and there's a lot of, of, of just of gaps. So I started into this by saying, you know, if I can start a program uh, to give veterans jobs, that would be something that would quote unquote, continue their service. So when I was at Rush University Medical Center, uh, we established a program called the Enabled Vet Program. And in that program, we set up a 13-week program where we taught veterans the basic PC skills um, and networking skills. Nothing quite, nothing elaborate, no classroom training, but then we provided on-the-job training, which we thought was even more valuable. What we found is a lot of the veterans were just falling through the cracks during interviews. They've never interviewed for a job. Their job might consist of, okay, Tuesday, you're going to Afghanistan. That's your interview. You're going whether you like it or not, whether your foot hurts or not, yeah. that is what you're doing. So they didn't have those soft skills, show up on time, dress well, give good eye contact, uh, be engaging, learn about the job that you want. And they were falling through the cracks. So we created this little mini program. And we worked with the, uh, the James A. Lovell Federal Healthcare Center amongst, and some other not-for-profits as well. And we got a cadre of military men and women in where we were actually being successful, not only with the training, but also with the coaching with um, uh, third-party um, support companies, headhunters, if you will, people that found jobs for people. Because if you think about it, Richard, what do you want in an employee? You want someone with integrity? You want someone who's going to show up on time. You want someone that's going to be dedicated. You want someone that maybe will work harder or work smarter. And so they already had these valuable military skills. Why not parlay them into a civilian career if you give them the right tools to be successful? Hmm. And so that's how it got started. Um, then I was, and I was willing to take on all comers, all veterans. I don't care if you got a master's degree. I don't care if you got this or that. Um, but we found a great need with those that had these in, in, invisible wounds. 
and in working with the staff at, at Rush University Medical Center, we were able to um, create that sense of purpose, rekindle that sense of purpose that brought them to the military in the first place. Because a hospital is a great place for service. And computer world is a great place to serve people that are using uh, PCs. And we found that while the ones that didn't have PTSD and maybe had a, a, a bachelor's degree or a master's degree, they could probably find jobs. We found that no one was really going to hire people with PTSD because they were just, they didn't understand. And the person with PTSD didn't know how to maneuver in order to make themselves successful. And after a while, if you've had four or five job interviews where, you know, five or 10 seconds into the job interview, you've already blown it because you're not dressed well or you're fidgeting around or you're not doing all those soft skills. Um, we managed to get them past that. And a lot of it, again, was effective training, listening. A lot of them are already on medication. But the fact of the matter is they needed, the more, they needed more help than, shall we say, the non-PTSD veteran coming home. So that's how I got into working with those, specifically with PTSD, because they were the group that was in the greatest need. What's the percentage of PTSD to non-PTSD uh, PTSD, uh, returning from military service? Some say it's, uh, it's, it's about one in nine, but other people think that it's probably it could be up to 20, 25, maybe 30% or higher. Mm. And Richard, it's because a lot of them go undiagnosed. And a lot of them will not go to the hospital. I talked to one veteran. I said, you know you need help, right? And he said, yes, I do. I, I know I need help. And I said, well, why don't you go to the VA? The VA is right across the street in Chicago, a very large medical complex on the west side. I said, why don't you just go to um, uh, Jesse Brown VA Medical Center? Oh, I'm not going to do that. And I'm like, well, why not? Well, I'm okay. Yeah, I'll get through it. And, you know, I don't want to take a, uh, an appointment away from another veteran that might need it. And it's like, you need it. And I know there's all kinds of stories about the VA, good, bad, and different, um, just like anything else. But the VA does have a lot of programs that can help um, veterans. But again, because you're trained to, you know, I'm it, you know, everything relies upon me. Mm -hmm. um, you, 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 you're trained to overcome it on your own. When in fact, in these particular instances, depending upon what you've see, seen or what has happened to you, you don't have it all together. And Richard, that contributes to the sad, sad fact that 22 veterans commit suicide every single day. Think about that number. We've lost more to suicide and other types of uh, violent activities, perhaps, uh, than we have lost total in the wars. Very, very grim and sad statistic. We're talking with Jamie Parent, author of Moving Past PTSD. And uh, we encourage you to get a copy. Go to movingpastptsd.net. That's movingpastptsd.net. Consciousness, understanding, and appreciation for military veterans and their families is the main focus of this. Uh, and we are with uh, a retired lieutenant, uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel 
uh, up from the Air Force, Lieutenant Colonel Jamie Parent. I'm Richard Dugan. This is Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. As we continue here on the program talking about uh, this subject that, yes, we hear it a lot, uh, that it affects our military, those people who have chosen to serve, uh, and they make that choice. And I, I find the the position that most take uh, that uh, they aren't heroes, they don't consider themselves anything special, that they made this choice to serve, uh, that is what they, they feel they were called to do, and um, they don't want any special treatment in that regard. And yet uh, there are also just as many who, uh, in the civilian world, who want to honor them uh, every Every holiday, if you will, or every day of recognition, whether it's Veterans Day, Veterans Day Memorial Day, Flag Day, Fourth of July, etc., 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 and say, "Look, uh, you did something that I just either I couldn't do because of a medical condition, or I just I just wasn't called to do it. I, I was called to to be part of the infrastructure behind the scenes, if you will, you know." Uh, trying to keep people informed, let's say, through, um, in this case, maybe radio, broadcasting, uh, podcasts and videocasts and so forth. Um, what were you doing before you decided to enlist or join the Air Force? And why? I was a, I was a medical technologist at, in Hartford, Connecticut. And um, I didn't think I was a military pedigree, if you will. Um, but I, I had talked to some friends that had been in the military and they said, you know, there's a great deal of opportunity in the military. And this was back Richard in 1983. As a matter of fact, Richard, I joined the military 38 years ago today. Wow. I joined, I joined for the opportunity for expanding what I could do as a medical technologist, a laboratory uh, person, if you will. And the Air Force had a, a, a great deal of uh, training, and then they would send you to be the director of a laboratory somewhere. So I was a laboratory director for the Air Force in several different assignments for about the first seven or eight years. Then when the advent of electronic medical records came on, I positioned myself to move out of the laboratory into the information world. And some people think that's quite a uh, quite a leap, but in fact it isn't because if you look at a laboratory, a laboratory either produces one of two things, either a blood bag or data. And what is electronic medical record today? It's, it's data. So I had the background and experience of working with some computers. And in fact, I got the opportunity to build the first electronic medical record, along with of course a cast of thousands, mm -hmm. called the composite healthcare system which is still in use today, even though they're rolling out different types of electronic medical records. The basics of the electronic medical record is still in there today, and it was really the VA in the 1970s that started all of this, the electronic medical records. Uh, it was a group that was faxing code between Dallas and Vermont and Alaska and all that kind of stuff back in the day. Faxing, this is the 1970s. Oh yeah. <laughs> all right? And then in 1980, Ronald Reagan became president. And these guys were working kind of like underground, not illegally, obviously, but they were just kind of doing this on the side. And then Ronald Reagan named somebody to head the VA as one of these guys. So they had instant legitimacy. 
And so then they started building the, their, their records. And then the DOD said, well, if the VA can do it, we can do it as well. And so I was in on the ground floor of that, um, that technology. Mm. And that created, I think, a lot of opportunity for me, but also to expand and improve healthcare coverage by creating these electronic medical records. And so I retired in 2003. And after I retired in 2003, I was a contractor for a while, but I really still had my heart in hospitals, mm. which is where I cut my teeth and where I grew up with. Well, so I wanted to, I wanted to, so I said, you know what, if I can turn myself into a technology person, I know I can turn these veterans into technology people as well. And of course, if you're looking at job opportunities, there's a lot of opportunities for people with basic PC skills and networking skills and even web developing skills. So I figured if, if I could tap into um, their military pedigree, if you will, of honor, sacrifice, work hard, um, make sure the mission goes well, and combine that with a, with a, um, a viable skill set, we could create a person who could do well in the civilian world. So I was just kind of reproducing what had happened to me with them. Well, I have a connection to the VA uh, as a uh, young man uh, out, of, uh, out of school, out of high school. Uh, I worked for a period of time in the X-ray developing department of the VA in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, then when I married my first wife, uh, she went through uh, training or school, I should say, to become a tr medical transcriptionist. And she worked for the VA for about a year. Uh, and one of the things she used to come home and tell me was, she says, I know more about the, those, these computers and, and, and uh, trying to do these transcriptions, transcriptions uh, uh, than any of the other people there, including the IT department, the, the guys who work on the computers. And I constantly am telling them, you need to do this, that, and the other thing. And, uh, and they wouldn't do it. And she says that uh, uh, there are three ways of doing it, things in the VA. And this was from her perspective as a trans medical transcriptionist. There's the right way, there's the wrong way, and then there's the VA way. And it's neither the right nor the wrong way. Um, but I will also add to that, so to give you context, my first wife was totally blind. And she was working as a medical transcriptionist for about a year. And finally, she just couldn't do it anymore. So she made a shift over to massage therapy. <laughs> which was much better uh, because she could do it her way and, uh, and, and it worked out much better for her in that regard. But uh, I remember uh, being in the VA and I remember coming across uh, certain individuals and they had different, uh, different issues, although I, I have to say I did spend most of my time in the dark room, <laughs> you know, in the dark. Um, and, but I have to say that as I started hearing the stories about how the v, the veterans were not getting the services that they ab desperately needed, I, I couldn't understand it. It's like we've got this massive hospital. We have all this technology. And again, this is back in the 80s. Uh, how is this even possible that these guys and gals aren't getting what they need? Um, and it's, 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 it's very unfortunate. We're talking with Jamie Parent, and we're talking about uh, the, the issue of uh, post-traumatic 
stress disorder, PTSD, and we're talking about his book, Moving Past PTSD, here on Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, as we're giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. As we continue here on this program, giving you choices and knowledge of, jo knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true, uh, we hope that you will uh, take a look at the YouTube channel for Tell Me Your Story. That is the name of the channel where you can watch these interviews, and I hope you'll do so. Become a subscriber. We're at uh, 13, 31. We have a whole whopping 31 subscribers. It's very exciting. Uh, but as of this particular broadcast, uh, the uh, number of listens that we have had since January 1 of uh, 2018, we're at 40,500. Now, I, I, I say this every time, uh, Jamie, uh, when I uh, give the number out as it goes up, I go, I don't know what that number means. Uh, I'm just grateful that people are listening. And that's what we want. We want people to listen. We want them to get involved. We want them also to go to your website, which, of course, is movingpastptsd, all one word, dot net, movingpastptsd.net. And we will be linked to your website as well, uh, Jamie, so that um, people can find out more about the work you're doing and maybe even get involved or by the same token, maybe even get the help that they need. And to that end, I want to ask you about this. Just as guys, you and I, just, just a couple of guys here, we were probably both raised with that same mentality of uh, uh, suck it up, man up, you know, put your big boy pants on and just just keep going. You know, it's not, there is no, uh, as, <laughs> as Jimmy Dugan in the baseball movie said, there is no crying in baseball. Well, there's no crying for guys. And yet sometimes I have to wonder if that just wouldn't be the best prescription for some of these folks to release that, that torrent of emotional energy that, that has built up from the experiences that they have had in the in the uh, theater it is beneficial just to get it out somehow I, I i would agree with you but when you're manning a post and you're out there on your own you have you, you just have that mindset that you're responsible you have to keep the chin up you have to keep strong you have to uh, in many instances lead um, and that's how you get through some of the traumas of, of, of war. Uh, I was very impressed by um, this one woman in our, our program who um, she was a Marine. She was one of the top sharpshooters Marines. Her job was to deliver ammunitions to the front. Mm. And she did that on a daily basis. She told me that her job, her name was, her nickname was B. She said, my job was to deliver the munitions to the front. And when I get shot at, my job is to save as many Marines as possible. And she had convinced herself that she was never going to make it back to the States. So B had some tremendous traumas because she did make it back to the States, but she was so hurt by the war, she could no longer leave her home. 
she could no longer um, eat properly. She had a fantastic husband who was the key to stop her from killing herself. Mm. Even though she's a very strong woman herself. We took B into our program. Now B had to take a train, two hour train to get to Chicago. She lived in Indiana. Two hours, two hours fro and two hours back. Her first train rides were very problematic for her. That's quite an understatement. She had periods of vomiting on the train. And when she wasn't vomiting, she was looking at people in the corners or out of the corner of her eye and saying, I can't, that person's out to get me. Mm. I'm, a, I'm going to keep my eye on that person. Now, if you can remember how hypervigilant she must have been overseas to stay alive, now she's in a crowded Chicago train and trying to cope. Well, long story short, B did fabulous in our program. And she overcame the difficulties it was to come to work. We created a safe place for B to the point where the train ride in wasn't a problem anymore. It was the train ride back home because she was leaving her safe place, right? Mm -hmm. And B came to me in my office one day and said, you won't believe what just happened. And I said, what? She said, I missed my train stop this morning. And I'm like, so? She goes, no, no, no. I missed my train stop this morning. I was so comfortable on the train that the, 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 it passed me by and I, I went past it. She said, do you know what a great feeling that is? And I'm like, well, no, B, but if you tell me about it, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm very happy for you. Um, and then a couple of weeks later, again, as we work with B and build her back to the old B that she was before she left, she came to my office and she said, you know what? Uh, you cured my PTSD. And I'm like, well, B, wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm glad you're making progress. Cured is a pretty strong word. And I'm glad we're able to help you. And you're doing great. You're doing great, B. But cured? And she said, well, I used to take eight medications and now I only take two. And I'm like, well, that's pretty good. And she was happy and I was happy, but, and of course, cured again, it, it's, I don't, I still don't know if you can be cured of PTSD, but I went to some of the psychiatrists at Rush University Medical Center and kind of like in an offhand moment, I said, Hey, you know, I got this veteran here and she's doing well, she's doing this, this, and she's off a lot of her medications and she's doing well at home and she has a balance in her life. And she, <laughs> she said one of the craziest things to me. She said that we cured her PTSD at Rush. And the psychiatrist looked at me, again, an experienced one with military members, and said, well, maybe you did. And I'm like, come on, come on. And he goes, no, 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 think about it for a moment. The PTSD may still be there, but it's been, again, put in the rearview mirror, moved past the PTSD. She now does very well 
And if it's, it doesn't matter, Richard, if we can call her cured or not cured, she's a much better person and she's, her PTSD is now manageable so that she can go out, find a job, get a job in technology and be a successful person. And that's really the best we can do to bring back somebody home, reinstill that sense of purpose and reintegrate them into society where they feel good about themselves and they, they can provide positive uh, experiences to other people. If she's happy, leave her alone. <laughs> if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? She would say things like, you know what happened to me at lunchtime? I'm like, what? And she goes, they asked me what I like to eat. They asked me what movies I liked. They asked me what my hobbies were. And I said, so, because I'm learning too, Richard, mm -hmm. obviously. And I said, so, and she goes, you don't understand. People just want to ask me, oh, so you were in the Marines. Did you kill anybody? And I don't want to talk about that stuff. I want to watch HBO. I want to know what these other folks are doing and I want to participate. Yeah. So again, it's kind of like, it's, it's, it's like a whole person kind of thing with PTSD. It's not just medications. It's not just therapy. It's also the bond that you spoke about a little bit, the hug the big hug, as we called it, that is that is really successful in treating people with PTSD. We're talking with Jamie Parent, uh, retired Lieutenant Colonel Jamie Parent of the Air Force. And um, those of you watching the YouTube video, you can see the emblem on his uh, on his chest there for the Air Force. Um, and, and you served, you said it sounds like you served for about uh, what was it, 20, 25 years? 20 years and four days. 20 years. <laughs> right down to the day. Any, how about the hours and minutes? <laughs> um, I'm curious about, uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, 0 being the best and 10 being the worst, uh, do you suffer from PTSD? Were you, actual, were you ever in combat? Because it sounds like if you were in a laboratory, you didn't have the same experiences uh, that many of the people that you are now working to help have had. I have my own set of um, anxiety and depression issues. I'm going to call it, stop, stop short of calling it PTSD, but I've had some things happen in my life that have caused me to... Um, have some moments of instability, shall we say? So when well, uh, so when a, a veteran comes to you uh, and starting to share with you, uh, do you ever get the comment? Well, you you didn't see combat, so you know how can you even relate to to what I am going through uh, because of what I did in the theater? How do you how do you address that? The first thing I say is you're absolutely right, and but it doesn't matter whether I have a complete understanding of what you went through. What matters is, can we pick up from that point and do things that help you get better, get a job, and reintegrate with your family? Um, one of the gifts, and I'll call it a gift, one of the gifts that I have is I have a 34-year-old son with autism. And although he is, he's got his challenges, he has his, he has his strengths. He's got a lot of social challenges, but he, he has a job. Uh, as a girlfriend, and he gets along very well. But his name is Brian, and I also credit Brian with my skills at being a chief information officer. 
because a lot of what good leaders do is they can anticipate what's going to happen next. And because autism is such a, a, a tough spectrum disorder, mm -hmm. I learned a lot from Brian as to the different types of personalities that are out there. I can say without, um, really without reservation, that I could go to a lot of hospitals and see some very, very well-educated doctors and nurses and other professionals that are on the autism spectrum and probably don't know it. So the gift that Brian gave me was my ability, the, in, the intuitive nature of anticipating what is wrong with people in terms of anxiety and depression. Uh, so even though I have my own mental health issues, which I still struggle with today, mm -hmm. I have an understanding of how to climb out of it and seeking what has worked well for me. Hopefully I can help those veterans as well with the skills that I've learned um, through autism and just through regular life. Um, the skills that I've learned that uh, I think is beneficial for me in making that connection mm -hmm. because you're right. Uh, there are some, <laughs> I joke with my army and, and marine friends and to some extent my navy friends because it's like what unit were you with well i was working in the hospital uh, <laughs> you know i didn't carry a rifle i didn't fly a plane um but i was in support right yeah uh, so again i think I've, I've developed those those intuitive skills um that have helped me along with my wife too who's a special education teacher and also behavioral specialist and we've learned a lot from our son, Brian. That's why I call it a gift, because mm. he's, helped, he's helped shape us into the people that we are. And when we were young and younger and struggling with autism, you got to remember, my son being 34 years old, uh, his diagnosis was in 1988. And Richard, this was before Rain Man. This was before Newsweek is on, uh, you know, autism's on the cover of Newsweek or Time Magazine. Um, before there was a great awareness. So we had to learn a lot of things on our own, not just in terms of managing my son Brian's behavior, but also managing our own behavior hmm. as to what do we do in, in specific instances. So because of that, we developed these kind of like ad hoc skills, I think, which were very effective. And basically, I believe God put us on this path to be able to learn these skills um, and then help others we're also struggling with similar issues. Do you or do any of the veterans that you work with ever have regrets that they enlisted, that they chose this course in their lives now that they well, have PTSD and they're suffering through this? Nothing is absolute, but I can say it would be a very rare find to find a veteran with PTSD or any other, even, you know, amputees or any other veterans with anything coming back, they all would do it again. Mm. And they all would like to, if, if the phone call came in today, they would go back. I had a guy that worked for me. He was part of the 82nd Airborne. He'd read something on the news. He'd come into my office and said, Sir, pack your bags. We're going to go back. And I'm like, well, we're not going back. But yeah, but if we go back, you know, we've got to be ready. In other words, they have no, no regrets whatsoever. They would do it all over again. I'm not quite sure why this is the case. 
<laughs> to be honest with you. Hmm. But it is prevalent. They yeah. they just loved what they did. And they a lot of them wish they could do it again. Several years ago, I interviewed the producer of a documentary, and it was called Welcome. And it had to do with a program that was working with veterans from the Vietnam War specifically in regards to regards to helping them to reacclimate into civilian life. And in the conversation, uh, he told me that the issue is not getting the soldier to acclimate to civilian life. It is getting civilians to acclimate to the soldier and his life. And that is that transition point uh, that, that the, this movie was trying to, uh, trying to get across to uh, people uh, was that we as civilians, I, I being a civilian, never having served, um, have got to change my mindset. I've got to change my view of the veteran. Uh, set aside any judgment that you have for whatever conflict they were involved with. They were sent. Whatever political issues are irrelevant because what we're dealing with is human beings here who are suffering in that regard. And I thought that was uh, a really interesting as well as paramount uh, perspective uh, to take. Uh, and um, really enjoyed, I, of course, I saw the documentary as well and, and really enjoyed uh, uh, talking with this gentleman about, uh, about this movie and about the work that was going on to help the veterans to transition, but also, uh, as you kind of referred to earlier as well, uh, helping the families who are also going through, in this case, as you and I are talking, also going through PTSD as far as the caregivers, whether it's the children or the husband or the wife who didn't serve. I also have to say to you that there is an element of military life that I wish that we could inculcate into our civilization. And that is the camaraderie, the brother and sisterhood, the leaving no man behind, the I have your six, whether you're in combat or otherwise. That connectedness that would transcend a lot of the polarization that has gone on in this country over the last 30, 40, maybe 50 years as I have watched uh, things unravel in that regard. And that is something I, I, I <laughs> my hat is off to uh, that aspect of the military training and the philosophy that exists. That it, it you know, you talk about your brothers in the Marines or in the uh, Army or the Navy, uh, or now, of course, the Space Force. Uh, they are all your brothers, and it won't matter if you guys are in the thick of whatever it is, whether it's civilian life, you know, on the streets, or if you're in combat in the theater, you guys are there for each other. You guys and gals, I, I shouldn't be sexist there, that you're all there for each other. You're all there to support one another uh, to help each other. And it's a oneness that gets created. Um, you're in the same job, you're in the same area. Uh, lots of times you're away from home. Uh, you're hundreds if not thousands of miles of where you grew up. You uh, work together, you eat together, 
you sleep together, you watch television together. Mm -hmm. Your whole lives have changed into this new um, family, if you will. And depending upon circumstances, how well you are with that family um, could save not only your life, but your family member's life. So there's that unique oneness, that camaraderie that you spoke of, that can be very powerful in terms of building character. Um, and then uh, learning and building skills so that you could be successful with something after that military experience is over. And I think that's why there's almost a resounding yes as to why these military uh, uh, members would go back again because they miss that they miss that 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 connection that they had and if you ever like see a veteran talk to one veteran they just maybe meet each other somewhere oh i was here oh oh really you were there oh well i did this oh well you know i heard about that but there's that again that familiarity that gets that gets lost and you know, you don't get that even in a four-year college yeah. dorm, right? Right. You may miss your roommate. You may miss some of the parties and stuff, right. and maybe even some of the courses, but you don't get that deep, deep camaraderie that and, you find in military yeah. life. And and here's an interesting—I'll call it a dichotomy, uh, maybe not so much—but then you begin to understand and wonder why so many young people, especially in the uh, ethnic communities, uh, communities of color, why they join gangs. It's for the same reason. It is, and that, and, and what that speaks to is, as human beings, uh, our need, our desire, our longing for community, for connection. Is, is Do you find that when a veteran suffering with PTSD, having sucked it up, manned up or womaned up, you know, and so forth, mm -hmm. is sort of thrust into this community of support and caring and, and, uh, and what have you, that they... At some point, and because I know it takes time, at some point they might even, uh, they may or may not break down, but they, they, finally, they finally get it. This is what I have been wanting. I don't have to go back to the theater to get it. I've got it right here with these people. And they, they do act, they genuinely care about me yeah. and what I'm going through. They actually understand what I'm going through. And okay, so I'm gonna give it a shot. I'm gonna hang in there. I'm et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's that strong sense of belonging. I belong to this group. I identify with this group. If I'm enlisted, I wear a, a chevron on my sleeve, or perhaps, or perhaps on the lapels. If I'm an officer, I've got bars. So you immediately, in uniform, you immediately see something, somebody that says, okay. You know, I'm with the parachute squadron. I'm with the police squadron because you see the badges on their uniform. So you're kind of like all on that same team. It's not, well, okay, so he's making more money than I am because he's got three stripes instead of two. No, no, it's not that way at all. 
Plus the military gives you some guidance and a career path for you to take the next step, to test successfully for staff sergeant or tech sergeant or whatever. Go to senior NCO academy school, go to Air Force Academy school, learn more about the military past, what worked and, and, and what didn't work in the past and provide a career progression where you can see yourself improving and see yourself, um, we call it kind of the upper out. You become more skilled at leadership types of things and you get promoted for those types of things. And I think because of that, you have a sense of, okay, I'm here, I belong here, but I can move up here and be successful and continue to do um, other things that I've learned or even career branching. I mean, look at my own situation. I was in the medical field as a laboratory officer and I got the opportunity to, to move into a chief information officer role through technology. The military gives you a lot of experience at a very, very young age. I remember back in the day, there was something about, I think it was some kind of Russian or Chinese satellite that was, that was twirling around up there and crashing to earth. And there was, the Navy was assigned with shooting this thing down. Okay. Mm -hmm. I was sitting there watching TV with my wife and I, I and, and I'm saying to myself, you know what? There's probably a 19 year old kid with the gunnery like this, right? And the sights. And this 19 year old kid is probably pushing this button to bring that thing down. You don't get that kind of responsibility anywhere else. Yeah. And when you can deliver on that type of thing, it makes you feel good about what you're doing and who you are as a person. And that's what the military does. It instills that confidence in you, um, perhaps not in a more perf most perfect way, but it instills that confidence that a young man or a young woman can have and then learn and then go on and do greater things. I, I would never have been a laboratory director in my 20s uh, in the civilian world. Right. I would never have been a, a chief information officer in such huge hospitals as uh, Wolford Hall Medical Center in San Antonio, Texas, a thousand bed hospital. I could never have that experience as a younger person, but the military offers that experience. And if you're able to take it and grab onto it, you can do some great things, not only for mm -hmm. a sense of service, but also for yourself. And the truth of the matter is not everybody is cut out for military service. And that's something that, that we need to acknowledge that uh, just because you want to doesn't necessarily mean you have the aptitudes for it. Uh, because I know that there are a number of people uh, over the uh, decades who they sign up, they go in, and they wash out because it's just not for them. They, uh, they're, maybe they're very strong-willed, and they just aren't going to put up with whatever it is that the military is trying to train them to do uh, or whatever the other reasons are. So, um, and plus the fact that we're not all meant to be. But I will say this about what you just described. Uh, and that is that is the part of uh, that is the part one of the other parts of the military that I wish we could instill into other uh, other aspects of our of, of the civilian world in terms of giving people confidence. You don't get that in any other institution. If we can refer to the military as an institution, you don't get that anywhere else. 
Uh, you don't get it in any educational institution. You don't get it in any medical institution, uh, um, religious institution, economic institution. It, it's, it's just not there. And um, I tell you what, uh, I may not be a fan of, uh, of um, I'm not saying that I wouldn't own a firearm, for example, uh, but I got no problem with other people as long as they're willing to say, yeah, we'll we'll protect you too. Okay, uh, you, you know, and uh, I don't. I just don't have a problem with that. And I wish. I, I hope that we never have to do it again. And I am sure too. You feel this way that that it sure would be nice if we could uh, at one level, at one level, disband or redirect the military's efforts. Uh, I would love to bring them all home and say, you know what, you all have a job. And that job is rebuilding, for example, our infrastructure and not just our bridges and our roads, but technology as well. I mean, you know, we we uh, some people, when you look around in some of these big cities, it looks like a third world country. And it's like, come on, this is America. And it's supposed to be, you know, the greatest country in the world. And look at what, what have we done? What have we you know, that's kind of the where, where I'm coming from. What have we done? What a mess. We need to fix this. And the military can come in and do some incredible things. I think about, for example, the Army Corps of Engineers uh, and the great jobs that they have done over the century uh, or however long they've been around at rebuilding things and designing things. It's just amazing. Uh, and so you folks who have served, you have some incredible training that, boy, I'll tell you what, we, we need to we tap into that. And you've already discussed that as well. And I think that and I applaud you for that. I think it's uh, great that you have uh, touched touched that particular stone, if you will, and uh, and said, hey, uh, you got some skills there. Let's um, let's see what we can do uh, to put those back uh, to, to, to use here in your now your civilian life. Yes, and it, and it goes back to the receptive part of that. Mm -hmm. So in order to do these great projects that you discussed, you have to have a society that's willing to take that on mm -hmm. and to understand um, how to deal with this population. You have to, you have to want to do it. Exactly. You have to want to do it. Yeah. Um, and you have to want to do it without um, politics or more importantly, lip service. Um, I was speaking with a vice president of a bank and they said, we have built this great website for veterans. I said, really? Tell me about it. Yes, yes. A veteran can apply for a job here. They've got their own website. They can put in their own information, upload their stuff. And, you know, we're really, we really hope that this thing will take off and really help our veterans get jobs. And I said, well, what's the difference between that website and your other job website? Oh, well, this website's uh, specifically for them. You know, we've got like the military background and the flags and stuff. And, and they click and they're, you know, they can submit their resume to a special place. And I said, okay. And um, what happens if that fit isn't there with this resume in the special place? What happens then? And the person kind of said, um, well, we, we just don't hire them. Okay. That's not somebody that really wants to help a military person. No. That's someone that wants to make it look good. And it made me cringe when I would see a commercial on television 
of companies like this one and that one who cosmetically put forward their support for veterans, but because they have not done the homework on their side of, of socially accepting and understanding the veteran, um, it's just not going to work. Uh, it's just not going to work. And a lot of that is just training, training of these folks, not to say that the military people are so different because they're not really, but it's just that sensitivity and an understanding of who they are and what they've been through. And it's not rocket science, Richard. It's mm -hmm. just it's just a socialization and, 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 and a willingness to help. I can say without any reservation that when we brought veterans into our community in the hospital, there were a lot of people that were like, mm, I don't know, Jamie, you know, this, uh, I don't know. I had this one guy, he was a financial guy. He says, you know, Jamie, what you doing? Wow, that's really great. That's really great. I applaud you for that. Said, okay, thank you. And he goes, but you know, um, I'm a little concerned. And I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Here it comes. And he said, um, you know, I, I hear that some of these uh, some of these veterans are kind of rough. And I'm like, okay, here we go. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he goes, well, you know, uh, what happens if one of them just kind of wigs out at work? And I'm like, well, we're a thousand bed hospital and we've got a very mature psychiatric place. And we've got also got a veterans program and on the medical side. I, you know, I think we could just say, uh, let me take you over to the emergency room or let me help you go over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that wasn't enough. He kind of came back again. And he goes, well, you know, some of these guys, you know, I, I hear a lot of like sexual harassment and stuff. What if some of these guys, you know, like grope a nurse or something? And I'm like, dude, we've got civilians that grope nurses around here. What is your point? <laughs> what are you trying to tell me? Are you trying to tell me that you have a little bias? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> we, just, we just need to be careful. We just need to be careful. Yeah. Well, you know, Richard, after I got done, you know, biting through my lower lip talking to this guy, I realized he... He just needed education. He didn't. He didn't need damnation. He didn't need judgment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He needed enlightenment. He needed sensitivity. He just needed education that he didn't have, so that these biases could be broken down. Yeah. And I found that when you hire a veteran and you bring them into the community, into your workplace, you'd be amazed at what they do to that workplace. Be. When when they when when the when the ladies were taking B out to lunch, they realized that B is a person, and they respected B for who she was and what she did, and not what uniform she wore or not what rifle she carried. And it improved it upped the game of the other workers. I'd have my vet say, "It's five o'clock and people are leaving." I'm like, "Well, yeah, <laughs> the shift's over. They go home." What do you mean they go home? We're not done. We still got like 35 laptops to deploy over over in cardiology. And I'm like, well, we can do that. Don't do that tomorrow. Well, why can't we do that right now? Where do you find employees like that? Yeah. 
that want to stay and keep working. And exactly. they're not making any more money for it. They're not out to get time and a half. They just want to get it done and want to do that service. Yeah, yeah. And so when the, when the civilians see that, it's like, oh, wow, this, this, is, this is really changing here. I, I, I guess I need to keep up. Yeah. In a good I, way. And I, I get that way sometimes when I'm in the middle of something and I've got to get out of here at 5 o'clock because I've got to go pick up my wife at the clinic where she works because she gets off at 5 and I don't want to have her sit there. If it's a hot day, I don't want to have her sitting outside sweltering in the heat. And so I got to go out the door. But it's like, yeah, but I, I got to finish this first. And fortunately, I have the, the, the flexibility where I can access the computers from my home computer and I can continue on once we get home. So uh, I, and I do that quite often. But I, I, I get that. I really do. And I've got a lot of other folks that I work with who are quite similar in that regard, where uh, they are very dedicated to what they are doing, whether it's dedicated to the company or not, or, or just dedicated to the work that they're doing doesn't matter to me. I'm grateful that they're just dedicated to, to complete the tasks at hand. Uh, and many times I got to say, hey, it will wait until tomorrow. Okay, or go take a break and you can come back or something like that. You know, don't want you to burn yourself out. Uh, but I have I have loved every minute of, of uh, the, the career that the vocation, actually. I, I said this in my last interview that uh, I'm very fortunate that I have not worked with maybe only a couple of exceptions. I haven't worked a day in my life. Um, I started out as a paper boy in eighth grade and high school. Uh, and I've worked for a number of other places, but and broadcasting has just uh, boom. So I'm very excited to have the opportunity to bring these stories uh, to our listeners and to our viewers uh, from you and others, Jamie. And I think that this is uh, something that we all need to touch base on. We're talking with Jamie Parent. Uh, he is a retired lieutenant colonel uh, from the Air, uh, with the Air Force. And uh, we are talking about uh, the work that he is doing uh, through a book that he has available and a website by the same name. MovingPastPTSD.net is the title of the website and drop the .net and it's uh, Moving Past PTSD, the title of the book. Available, I'm sure, uh, over on Amazon and many of the locations. You can go through his website, which, Jamie, we will be linked to. I want you to know that uh, we're connected to your website so that people can get in touch, uh, get in touch with you and get a copy of the book and uh, find out more about the work that that you are doing and we're greatly appreciative uh, that you uh, and it's uh, like I said before it's it 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 galls me uh, that uh, our government asks you to do something and then once you've done it they don't know you who are you uh, go away move up go away kid you bother me go away uh, and it's really unfortunate uh, that's at least that's my perception uh, because of the fact that uh, veterans are not are not taken care of and I sometimes have to wonder if there isn't a, a pre-enlistment uh, education that says understand that if you want to serve your country that's laudable congratulations and and my hats off to you understand that when you get back there won't be anybody here from the government to take care of you uh, so you might want to start building that network before you go uh, of people who can be here to support you uh, because it's just unfortunate that the bureaucracy that exists, unfortunately, it seems like it leaves people behind and we cannot afford, I mean, uh, set aside the military adage of not leaving any man or woman behind. 
we can't afford to leave anybody behind. They're too important. They have too much potential, uh, too much they will be able to bring to us as a society and as a civilization. And so I applaud you for the work that you are doing. And the last thing that veterans want is a handout. Right. They don't want a handout. They get the free health care, which is appreciated, but they don't want a handout. They want a hand up. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's, that's, the, that's the gap that we're facing. Um, they, well, they want to be able to continue to serve, mm-hmm. and they also want to continue their own personal sense of purpose. I mean, you have a sense of purpose that you just described, Richard, that gets you up every day, the excitement of broadcasting. You say, like, you've never worked a day in your life, and I, I, I agree with you because you enjoy it so much. Mm-hmm. That's, the military member doesn't want anything different than that. They want to be able to contribute, and they want to be able to to have that kind of option to enjoy what they're doing through um, integrating back into the community. Yeah. That's all they want. They just want that chance. And when they get that chance, the people that hire them realize the valuable asset that they've just brought on board. Jamie Parent, thank you so much for giving us so much time here on the program. I really do appreciate the messages that you bring forth, and I certainly hope that our listeners will uh, look you up on the website, uh, movepastptsd.net. I do have three final questions for you that I like to ask all of my guests. You may have touched upon this uh, within the context of the interview, but I like to ask the questions pointedly. Uh, One area that we did not get into, and maybe I'll have to have you back to discuss this, uh, and that is the the uh, spiritual aspects uh, that I'm sure you and all other uh, uh, members of the military, regardless of what branch, um, deal with in terms of uh, their own inner life and how they juxtapose that with what they have to do in the outer life. And, and maybe we'll, we'll talk about that uh, when we uh, have you back again, because I think that would be an important conversation uh, to have. I know there are chaplains and rabbis and so forth within the military, too. Uh, but I know that it's an issue that, um, that we would like to talk about as well. Before I let you go, I want to let our listeners and viewers know. You are listening to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We're here Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., and Wednesdays for a special edition of Tell Me Your Story at 9 a.m. And we stream live at those times at richarddugan.com. Our podcasts are on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, and many other locations. And if you like what we are doing here, you might want to go also to YouTube and watch these interviews at the channel Tell Me Your Story. Just look for the guy with the hat. Also, uh, we would appreciate any support financially that you can give us. If you would like to support us financially, we have a PayPal account. Uh, The link is on our homepage. And all you have to do is click on the donate uh, link, and uh, then you go there and you submit whatever it is that you do. We'll take any amount. We'll take energetic support as well. We're very, very grateful. I, I, I cannot thank you enough. And I won't sit here and just say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. But that's how I feel. Anytime somebody contributes to this program, it is, uh, it's a great boost, but it's a great feeling to know that people care enough that they're willing to part with uh, what for some is very hard earned. So again, I thank those who have supported and those who will uh, support in the future. And also participate in the year of perfect vision or actually the decade, the decade of perfect vision, the 2020s. 
spend time going within. We're going to have Jamie back to talk about what that's all about within the context of a military life of service uh, in terms of one's inner life, that, that listening to that still, small voice and finding that calm, peaceful, quiet place uh, that every veteran, every human being needs to find. Uh, to to sort of recenter and re-energize and refocus and and uh, relax, be at peace and be calm for a period of time, even if it's just five minutes. Just take five minutes, all right, and just don't do it while you're driving. Okay, pull over into a parking lot and turn the engine off and just listen, just listen, Jamie. I have those three questions, and the first of those three questions is. Who is Jamie Parent? Jamie Parent is a lucky man. <laughs> he grew up not knowing where the dots were connected and not knowing where he would end up. But Jamie Parent was fortunate enough to find his Lord, Jesus Christ, at the time when it was needed. Hmm. And along those lines, gained, I guess, the insight and the spirituality to help others even though the, the spirit he was following, they may be following different spirits. Mm -hmm. I was amazed and I was, I'm amazed and continue to be amazed at what I find and what, what comes to me because of what my faith is. Richard, we were able to bring a military man with a traumatic brain injury and a strong man of Muslim faith together. This is a man that shot Muslim people as a Marine. He's got one of the cutest faces, but when you look at him in the Marine garb, he is fierce. And they came together and the Muslim man was so grateful because what does he want to do? His faith tells him to help everybody. And Ryan was the, the Marine and was able to make that connection. Richard, in my wildest, my wildest, I never thought I would see something like that. Mm. And that's the kind, that's why I say, despite marrying a great person and having a wonderful family and all that, I'm, you know, I'm a very lucky man, a very blessed and lucky man. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you are doing now? I want to create a sensitivity where the veteran with the values that they have can continue to serve. And I want society to understand that there is so much unused talent there that they can tap into. 
where they not only, you know, they, they, they go into this thing thinking, I'm helping the military veteran. I'm helping them get a job. I'm, I'm doing a good thing. Mm-hmm. I would have people that have dedicated their, I, I would know people in the hospital that dedicated their lives to nursing or to radiology or to, or to cardiology. And they would say, Jamie, how can I be part of this program? I'm like, well, okay, what would you like? Well, you know, I'm, I'm coming to work, but I'm not satisfied. And I'm like, you're a nurse in ICU. Yeah, I know, but I, I, I want to do more. <laughs> That's the spirit I think you're, you're referring to. Yeah. On the surface, you'd say, wow, you know, you got PhD, RN, MD, DMD, whatever. But you're still missing something. Mm-hmm. And that's what I would like to be able to, to say to society. These, these military members have value. And if you recognize the value, you'll go into this thinking you're helping them. But before you know it, you realize they're changing you. Sounds kind of corny, maybe. Not at all. That's what what I've seen in her. Not at all. Final question. What is your life's purpose? My life's purpose is to leave the planet as best I can in a better place than it was before I got here. Mm. Um, I might not be changing the world by creating a brand new IT product, I might not be able to um, speak in front of thousands of people, but if I can change individual lives, um, that is a that is a passion of mine. And I also realized, Richard, that you know, by writing the book, um, I've heard through third parties that. Someone, uh, a woman that works in the VA told me that uh, she handed a copy of my book to a veteran that was struggling. And the veteran came back and she didn't want to give it to the veteran because that was her own copy, her own signed copy. But she gave it to the veteran because she thought it would help him. And he came back a week later. He never gave her back the book. (laughs) But he said, thank you for giving me that book because I was going to go home and kill myself that night. Instead of doing that, I started reading the book. And it's great when I can look at somebody like B and say, yeah, I've made a difference. But it jazzes me up even more knowing that the book is out there and I'll never know who it helped. But it helped somebody. Can't save the world, maybe, but save just a little part. One little droplet in the still pond ripples out. Great beautiful question. thing. Beautiful thing. All right. Well, retired Lieutenant Colonel Jamie Parent, thank you again for joining us here on the program. It's been a great pleasure, and, and uh, we do need to have you back to, to talk about uh, the other aspects of the work that you are doing, and uh, we will do that. And, uh, again, I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much, Richard. I enjoyed every moment. Thank you. And I thank you for listening and watching Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. We're here on a regular basis. We're here on podcasts, on the radio broadcasts, on the videocasts on YouTube. And we hope that you will avail yourselves of any or all of those sources. And until our next broadcast, podcast, videocast, love 
to lull. 